This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Crown and Anchor, Greyhounds. This is Richmond Till We Die, a conversation about the Apple TV Plus show, Ted Lasso, where we explore the characters, their relationships to each other, and how they're able to make us laugh until we can hardly breathe one moment and then feel with the deepest parts of our hearts the next. I'm Marissa, and I am a firm believer that Marshmallow Fireside is the best candle at Bath & Body Works. I'm Christian, and one thing that always surprises people is that I got my first name because it's my mother's maiden name. And I'm Brett, and I just wanted to share that I have been thinking a lot about getting my very first tattoo, so I will keep you all posted on that. For this episode, we are thrilled to welcome Pastor Nadia Boltzweber. She is an ordained Lutheran pastor, the founder of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, the creator and host of the Confessional Podcast, as well as the author of three New York Times best-selling memoirs, Pastrix, Accidental Saints, and Shameless. Nadia is a public theologian and one of those people best described in her own words. So to quote her bio from her website, she writes and speaks about personal failings, recovery, grace, faith, and really whatever the hell else she wants to. She always sits in the corner with the other weirdos. When we started to see all the religious and spiritual imagery in season two of Ted Lasso, we knew we wanted to have someone on the podcast to have a conversation about all of it. We also knew it had to be the right person. Look, all three of us hosts have deep history in church ministry and Christian higher education. And from our view on the inside, we know a lot of folks that have been hurt and excluded by those who call themselves Christian. Pastor Nadia was the person we hoped would join us for this conversation because she's felt those feelings of hurt and exclusion and now having been called to ministry approaches her call as that of a door opener as opposed to a gatekeeper. And of course, she's a huge Ted Lasso fan. So one last thing before we jump in. This episode does contain some, as Arlo White would put it, fruity language. We typically tend to edit the curse words out of our episodes with some kind of fun sound effect, but... For this episode, we've left them in. It's nothing you haven't heard if you watch Ted Lasso. But if your kids are around and you don't let them watch Ted Lasso, it might be best to pop in an earbud or save this episode for that one quiet hour between their bedtime and yours. And finally, be advised that there are spoilers for season one and season two of Ted Lasso in our conversation. So if you haven't caught up on the show, go watch it. Come back and listen when you're done. All right, let's get to it. Please welcome our guest, Nadia Boltz-Weber, today. Woo-hoo! Woo! <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Nadia. So our audience, we have a lot of people who just aren't really familiar with um, the Christian space. And so while we know a lot about you and have read your books and listened to your podcast and seen a number of your videos, um, I do think it would be helpful for people to get just a little bit of the lay of the land of your experience. And I know a lot of our listeners um, have had experiences with people who call themselves Christians that left them feeling hurt and excluded, which is also part of your story. What's not part of most people's story is that um, you've then like come full circle back into pastoral ministry, which is a story that you tell in your writings. So what are one or two events that you might point to for people who are just meeting you for the first time? that um, pertain to your call and coming back into uh, 
I guess, Christian community at large, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So um, my call to ministry story actually sort of took place in a basement comedy club in Denver. And um, what happened was before I had definitely before I'd ever gone to seminary, but I was in recovery. I would go to this AA meeting that had a lot of other stand-up comics. I'd been doing stand-up for years at this point. I couldn't afford therapy, and it was, you know. Uh, then I got paid $30 to MC a set at the downtown comedy club, so it was a lot more affordable. But anyway, um, there was a beloved Denver stand-up comic and a member of AA. So PJ had a lot of problems outside of alcoholism, including mental health problems. And sadly he lost that battle and he ended up dying by suicide. And when he died, all of our friends just looked at me and they were like, well, Nadia can do his funeral. And I hadn't been to seminary. I was just literally the only religious person in my whole friend group. And so they're like, well, she's religious. She can do it. And so I said, yeah, fine, I'll do it. And it was in a comedy club in downtown Denver. And I remember looking out and seeing these people who are experiencing so much shared pain and loss, you know, all of these comics and recovering alcoholics and academics and queers. And, and they, it was clear they didn't, they needed somebody to guide them through their own grief. And I just, I thought these people, these people need a pastor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I went, Oh shit. I think that oh no, I think that might hold on. Is that me? Like I I it was like I just like, oh, I should never have said that, you know, but uh it ended up being me. So my sort of like call to ministry was really I felt called to be a pastor to my people, not not to be a pastor within the giant mechanism institution of the church, however they wanted to use me. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot to be said about having shared spiritual practices and marking the, the year in a certain way together and sharing each other's burdens and being able to pray and be desperate together and also share in joy. And, you know, a lot of times that takes place in religious settings historically. And so maybe, maybe there's not, quite enough wrong with the church to completely abandon Christianity. And maybe there's just enough wrong to stay, you know, try and mess with it a little. I like that. You uh, founded House for All Sinners and Saints. How did that look different? And um, how is it also like a practice, you know, the practice of theology different from what a lot of people might think of as a typical expression of Christian worship? Mm. Well, interestingly, it is very liturgical, you know, um, much, it's much more, it's very traditional. It's just not conventional, let's say. So it is sort of a high church liturgy, but it's done in a super informal way. And also in a congregation of people who don't necessarily look like they belong in church. Mm. My dad says it's like high church at the Star Wars cantina. So that's the vibe. <laughs> that's that's what House for All Sinners. You're speaking is. Christian's language. <laughs> <laughs> yes, both of those things. <laughs> so, you know, I had to start a church from scratch that I would personally feel comfortable showing up to. I mean, I'm still part of, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm the pastor emeritus at House. I'm not a member anymore, although I'm presiding there this weekend. But um, I, I, do preach regularly at the cathedral here and at a big Presbyterian church and really all over the world. I preach all over the world, if I'm honest. And, um, and that's great, but there are very, very few churches that I have felt fully comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, house is one, there was one that was this really cool, like alternative worshiping community in Gothenburg, Sweden, or something like that, that I went to on a Sunday night at the cathedral. And I felt totally comfortable there. And, uh, and I feel totally comfortable in the other congregation locally that I serve on a regular basis, which is inside the walls of the women's prison. So oh, cool. there's, there's a congregation that's just exclusively uh, incarcerated women. And I feel super comfortable with them. And, like they're not going to judge me, you know, I'm not going to judge them. I mean, that's the, that's the fear, isn't it? So often yeah. I could go to church. They're going to judge me. I mean, who wants to, 
who wants to have to bracket out huge parts of who they are in order to show up someplace that's supposed to be spiritual? That's just no right. sense to me, you know? Well, and you, your whole, well, ethos, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but what I've gathered from following you and listening to you is like, you're always talking about it has to point back to grace. And so, you know, finding that in those spaces, like, usually has to look different than where we grew up. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I don't know if you guys had an official way to pivot to Ted Lasso, but <laughs> but I do want to say, you know, I went back knowing I was going to be on this. I went back and watched season two again, and it is just drenched in grace. That show is mm-hmm. drenched yeah. in grace. It is extraordinary that there are so many instances of it, of people being accepted as they are not being expected to pretend to be someone else, you know, uh, there's so much forgiveness in the show. It's extraordinary how much forgiveness is in that show. Like yeah. even yes. that, that beautiful Christmas episode where, yeah. um, they go to that boy's house who was tormenting Phoebe. Is that the little girl? Mm-hmm. And, um, yes. and she has the sign and she's like, you know, as a Lutheran theologian, let me just backtrack as a Lutheran. What we talk about a lot is a, is this um, tension between this dialectic between what we call law and gospel. So law is like anything that convicts the conscience, anything that accuses us of not mm. meeting some kind of mark. Right. And then the gospel is this unmerited sort of grace that washes over us and goes, it's OK. Stop trying so hard. You know, and um, I loved that in her little flip chart at his door when they were supposed to be caroling it was law and gospel like she was mm-hmm. like yes. you did this thing you really hurt my feelings and you are going to stink forever unless you make mm-hmm. some meaningful amends right and yeah. before he even had a chance to perform some sort of apology if that's what he was going to do or even sincerely offer some kind of repentance before he had even had a chance to do that, she said, I forgive you. Yeah. And, and, and the thing about that is that so often that unmerited grace and forgiveness that we want to withhold because people don't deserve it. They haven't been contrite enough. They haven't shown us they've changed enough. You know, they haven't proven they're, wor- they're worthy of it. If First of all, if you have to prove you're worthy of it, it's it's something. It's not grace. Just yeah, it's to begin with. Grace. Right? Yeah. But <laughs> right. But I see this sort of contrition and repentance and change and humility come as a result of receiving unearned forgiveness and grace, not we will withhold it until you prove that to us. And that's what humans want to do all the time. But um, anyway, so I saw that even in that that really sweet little scene. Yeah. And I thought it was. I pay really close attention to the music in the show. And I noticed yeah. that was the only time that a sacred song was playing in the entire episode. There's yeah. all that Christmas music and only one yeah. sacred song. And it's during that moment, which I just yeah. think speaks to the brilliance of this show even totally. more. And since we've pivoted, you know, I, I think the reason we knew that you got into Ted Lasso is because you had a pretty funny tweet about it. I'm going to quote you to yourself, which I know everyone loves, right? <laughs> you said, I started watching Ted Lasso last night to see if it was as charming as everyone says, but also to see if I could stand it because charming isn't usually what I look for in TV shows. I watched six episodes in a row. I am charmed. Damn it, Ted Lasso. And so I think we saw that came across our radar and we were like, oh my gosh, like, Pastor Bolsweber likes this show. It wouldn't it be so cool if we could talk to her. So I, we see that the hype train was what got Ted Lasso on your radar. But what actually, kept you there? no, no, that's okay. not what got it. We're correcting the record. To, okay, I know that I shouldn't say this, but I'm only going to say it because it's true. Renee <laughs> Brown told me to watch Ted Lasso. That seems to be a lot of people's story, Nadia. <laughs> she, she was on my. I did this thing on election day called "Keeping It Together with Nadia Boltzweber on Instagram. At the top of each hour during election day, since we're all trying to keep it together, I invited different people at the top of the hour to help me keep it together for ten minutes. And so uh, I had I had different people. I had. You know, the Episcopal presiding bishop, Michael Curry. I had my mom. I had Brene Brown. You know, I had like, I had a, uh, the founder of MuslimGirl.com. I had a rabbi. Like, I was, I was like, I'll take it from anybody I can get it from, you know? 
So anyway, it was then she I had seen it that it was like in streaming. I knew nothing about it, but she was the one like, this is what I'm loving. This is what I'm loving. I am a massive consumer of television. I watch hours of television every day of my life. I am. I love television. But that tone, that sort of cheerful tone is not usually what I lean into. (laughs) (laughs) We have considered and um, kind of given Brene Brown the title of the matron saint of our podcast because um, her (laughs) podcast is what got my wife to say, ah, we should really watch this. And now like here we are. So yes, (laughs) that is very resonant with our experience. Um, So, you know, the cool thing is you mentioned your time in stand-up comedy. So you kind of understand um, and probably like see a lot of the humor that's going on there. What is it that makes the humor um, of this show work for people? And then for like you, someone who I'm guessing is being a little bit more analytical as you sort of Mm -hmm. like take in the jokes and the callbacks and the gags. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it appeals to people my age. There's so many Gen X um, sort of references <laughs> in this show. I mean, HR Puffin stuff, like who, who else is going to know what that is? So, I mean, there are certain, those kind of references are, are lovely. Um, and then I think, first of all, one thing that people might not know about stand-up comedy is that the highest compliment one comic would ever pay another of course never if they're in the room (laughs) you would never do this but to somebody else is you say hey have you seen so-and-so's act and and they say no i go oh you should watch they're a really good writer that's the compliment so stand-up itself is all about writing people may or may not actually um you know write words on a paper right Right, but right. it's writing because it is it is uh, all about economy of language and choice of word and inflection and things like this. And so the writing on Ted Lasso is exquisite. It is beautiful writing. And so that is one thing that makes it actually funny is that the writing is good. And there and um, and I think that it does it doesn't seem to have it is the exact opposite of the equally brilliant writing on succession. Mm, Yep. Yep. Succession has genius dialogue and almost all of it is our insults to somebody else. (laughs) Almost all of it is at the expense of another character. And that is, that is not the humor that's in Ted Lasso, but it's equally as brilliant. I mean, one of my favorite things about Ted Lasso is Keely and Rebecca's friendship. Yes. I talk about that (laughs) all the time. (laughs) Their friendship looks familiar to me because I have so many female friendships like that. And it's never portrayed on TV. We're always competing against each other or pitting against each other or talking behind someone, being nice and talking behind someone's back. There's only ever room for one female to win on a TV show. And that's not the case in Ted Lasso. And I love that. Right, right, right. Um, Because me and my girlfriends will send each other sexy selfies to each other (laughs) and then and then go on and on about how hot each other is i mean on a fairly consistent basis like oh my god you're so fucking beautiful i mean constantly so this is a type of female friendship that's actually accurate when it comes down to it so there's a lot that you know makes sense with the comedy one of the things that would sound pretty horrible to me when it was pitched but that works amazingly is all of the comedy and jokes that they inserted into season two um, that have a high church theme to them. So mm-hmm. we get one at first with um, a Star Wars reference, like may the force be with you and also <laughs> and with also you. With you. Yes. That was, yes, that's, yeah. Uh, my ex-husband, I think, had a t-shirt that said Lutheran Jedi, may the force be with you and also with you. <laughs> So then they like go back to the well in a really big way with um, even an entire bit with uh, Roy and Ted in the Euro shop and um, Ted kind of like forcing, no, this is church, this is church, this is church. What is it about that using high church vernacular as comedy, do you think that works on a show like as broadly popular as this? 
Well, because most of the viewers, I mean, in England are going to be Church of England folks. So mm. I think people in the UK are much more native to high church than people in the U.S. are. It's a smaller percentage of us who are in liturgical high churches in this country than in the U.K. So I, I hate to talk about another television show. Do it. Can Absolutely. Yeah, it could be a spinoff podcast for did, us. Did you guys watch Midnight Mass? No. no. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just finished it. Okay. I don't generally watch horror. And so, and this has a horror aspect to it, but like 10%, right? It's not, that's not the main thing. It is all high church, every single episode. Huh. I never in my life thought I would hear on a, t on a Netflix show, hear somebody talking about, why are you wearing a gold chasuble? It's the third Sunday of ordinary <laughs> time. What? Well, like, I. <laughs> that is some inside baseball. Like, and, oh yeah. And talking about, are you the thoroughfare? They use the word thoroughfare. I mean, the whole thing is, it's it's a high church, truly high church um, horror series. And it's a limited series. There's only like, I don't know, nine episodes. And, but the thing that I thought was extraordinary about it is that, and I find this in really good pop culture that does dare to delve into religion, even like Book of Mormon or that that TV, that uh, movie Dogma, yes. things that are supposed to be making fun of religion, right? These, these films and TV shows that pious religious people think are just absolutely sacrilegious, right? right? And, and, and get very upset about them. I actually love the commentary because it's the shit that we know is broken about religion. Mm. And I find them to be deeply faithful to what the core of religion is supposed to be about. In the end, the, I cried for the last 10 minutes of Midnight Mass. Mm. Cried. Because it was so beautiful. Because it showed what it was supposed to actually really be about, which we all know that. People don't leave Christianity because they're like, that Jesus guy has nothing to offer. People leave Christianity because they believe so much in what Jesus, that Jesus guy has to offer that they can't stomach being part of an institution that claims to be about it and clearly isn't. Mm. And so I think that often pop culture can reveal the heart of something while seemingly using most of its time to critique it. Yeah. And I think we see that portrayed really interestingly in a couple of other instances in the show. Like you have the beard mm -hmm. episode, which I loved. I know it's controversial, but I loved it. And there's that like mm -hmm. pivotal scene toward the end where he walks into a church and then he like goes right. to the church basement and it's like, everyone's like mm -hmm. dancing. Right. And like, he sort of like has this reconcili mm -hmm. this conciliatory moment with Jane. Which I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Okay, because you know what's interesting to me is upstairs in the church, he was praying to God. He's like, look, you know, first time caller, <laughs> man, whatever. Yeah. That was funny. Um, he prays to get her back, right? Like this thing where we use God like this divine vending machine. Like if we can just put the right prayer quarter in then the gumball will be released <laughs> of whatever it is we are specifically asking for that we think this particular gumball is what will make me happy right and so he's like i want this girl and why does he say he says i want this girl because life seems so much more interesting with her mm. right he has had an unbelievably interesting <laughs> yeah. evening so all evening without her and he goes downstairs and he's the most interesting person yeah. in the room quite without her you know so i i found that to be interesting in terms of what it says about us right. and mm. how we want to manipulate god to get like why aren't you playing by my rules why aren't you if you loved me my life would look like this right. mm. my life doesn't look like this therefore you don't love me one of the things that you said early on in our, our conversation is um, everything is kind of about like dads on this show and like how fathers can really totally. mess you up or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe you have a healthy one like Sam and his father do. But I was thinking about that and kind of 
this idea that we talk about too on that's you know recurs on the show is this like fear and vulnerability and I know Brett already quoted you to you but you posted something just a few weeks ago on Instagram where I follow you and it's like fear disguises itself in so many ways as greed hate isolation addiction the list is endless but in the end fear is at the root of it all and then you talk about how it keeps us isolated and small and steals away joy and possibilities so would you maybe talk about some of the ways you see fear or maybe a lack of vulnerability in some of these characters and how they reveal themselves on Ted Lasso? The issue of masculinity came up in my confessional podcast all the time, all mm -hmm. the time. And masculinity is the subtext of the entire Ted Lasso show yes. in some way. And so here you have Nate, emasculated his entire life by his asshole dad and what that what that the pernicious effect that has on the developing psyche of a young man and the and how much hatred gets turned inward because of of how poorly mirrored you were by your father you know and so the fact that he spits in the mirror yes. at himself uh -huh. breaks my heart and the fact that he because his own self-hatred demonstrated itself through these two seasons in two opposite ways. One way was in the fact that he wouldn't even correct someone when he, they got his last name wrong, right? Mm. He did not have enough of his own dignity to defend mm -hmm. in the face of all of the insults of the other players, all of that. And then when Ted does finally see him, ask his name, starts paying attention when he says stuff, brings him alongside the coaching staff, all of that stuff. It's almost as if he, his hatred of himself could not be healed by just that. And so what it did was then it turned into attacking the next guy on the totem pole down from him, being cruel to him. And then in sort of having this inflated sense of himself. So both the under like the completely deflated sense of himself and the overinflated one, both of these are are a sign of insecurity. And that that stemmed from, I think, just him being fathered so poorly his whole life, you know. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Something that's developed in Ted Lasso fandom now is a real, I would say, hatred of Nate. Like there was a long time where everything in the Ted Lasso corner of the internet was positive, 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 like cheery, cheery, cheery. <laughs> and then... One thing that we've noticed is when we post, you know, screen caps of scenes or whatever um, on Instagram or on Twitter, undoubtedly numerous people will jump in and call Nate names, like say horrible, I hope he gets what he deserves, Nate the snake, da 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 da, -da. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. I almost wonder like if a lot of fans are maybe <laughs> their hearts are getting so hardened toward Nate that if there is a <laughs> redemption arc, like it will be difficult for them to fully like enjoy that and find meaning in that in, in ministry and in the show, I guess just like what kind of encouragement or perspective might you give folks when it comes to redemption and forgiveness and maybe even loving your enemies? Mm. Well, I, I do love what, what Ted said in, um, in the uh, funeral episode where he goes, you know, I used to think that if you did good things, People who did good things went to heaven and people who did bad things went to hell. But now I know 
all people do both. Mm. And um, in in Lutheran theology, the Latin term for it is simul justus et peccator, which I have tattooed on my wrist, which means simultaneously sinner and saint, that we are all simultaneously both those things. That there is, uh, even though Ted is this really great guy, there's, there is a sinner in there, you know? Yeah. And just because Nate at this point has done some horrible things, there's also a saint in there. And so I think the compa- having compassion for that is not the same as excusing behavior, yeah. you know? Yeah. And right now we, ha- we are in the, a- quote, the age of accountability. And so uh, what that actually turns into is uh, the age of performative cruelty. Mm. And so if somebody has made a mistake, they've acted horribly, they've caused harm in some way, then of course they're taken out like trash. But part of the reason that we all sort of gang up on people to, as we say, cancel them really is the instinct within us to protect ourselves. Like part of the the culture that we have right now of performative cruelty around people's mistakes is it camouflages itself as this noble, but we are not going to allow anyone to pretend that harm isn't harm, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, man, for sure. I telling the truth about harm, I'm I'm about that a hundred percent. But people are terrified to go the next step and go, what does forgiveness look like? How do we allow people back onto the island after we voted them out? You know, is redemption possible? Or do we really just throw people away? What would it look like for Nate to have a redemptive story? I think it's possible. I think I think that he could have a realization of what he was doing. And to then break down and sort of tell the truth about it and to have people go, man, we love you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The love that we've had for you for years isn't now completely evaporated because you did this thing that was deeply hurtful to us. You still matter, you know? Yeah, I think a lot of people's feelings about Nate and their reactions, like it's probably grounded in the nature of his transgression against Ted. I think that like violating the privacy of Ted's mental health, like that just really strikes Mm -hmm. in a lot of us because we live in so much fear that, you know, people will find out about our mental health issues or that something is on the line if people find out about that. Mm -hmm. So I do think, you know, it comes from a place of of fear and hurt, but um, yeah, it's, it's intense out there on these internet streets. (laughs) Well, I, (laughs) It just makes me go, have you not heard anything Ted said for two years? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ted, um, there is kind of this like ministry of Ted Lasso, obviously. One of the places that we see that in a different way um, is in the scene at the funeral for Rebecca's dad. And in that episode, you have the vicar, but the vicar is... Um, not really, I Useless. guess. Yes, I, I was going to say. <laughs> just yelling at everyone not, all the time. <laughs> yeah, he's not the center of the ministerial work that needs to happen in that grievous sacred moment. Instead, it is like Rebecca and Ted. And so what kind of um, statements do you see being made there about outsiders coming in and having a voice within the you know structure of the church? Yeah, I that guy was just completely inept. I one of the things that I love about this show to not answer your question <laughs> is um, <laughs> is is the fact as somebody who has gotten a lot of um, slack from Christians about my how I talk, mm. like they're they're super offended because I say I use bad words. How dare you? <laughs> I, meaning I talk like just regular people yeah. talk. like normal fucking people talk this way right i don't know you know it's not like i'm faking a british accent or something i should actually be ashamed of do you know what i then i should be ashamed of how i talk but um they they're they're like you're supposed to be an example <laughs> and i'm like an example of what like competitive piety or pretending to be a person I'm not. I don't understand how that's an example for me to pretend to be someone I'm not. Anyway, uh, one of the things I absolutely adore is how filthy 
the writing is. <laughs> there is, I mean, in the Christmas episode, Ted Lasso makes a reference to a well-hung porn star, yeah. <laughs> right? And and Rebecca's like, the only thing I want to see uh, Daniel Craig and Rachel Weiss do is fuck, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's really, there's this raunch to it, but it is in the television show that shows the most grace and forgiveness and kindness and compassion. And grace and forgiveness and kindness and compassion those are actually Christian, supposed to be Christian virtues, not not pearl clutching nice language, you know, not like policing if people are saying the bad words. Mm. Right. And so I absolutely adore that all of these things that you might maybe find in some over sentimentalized schlock, like touched by an angel, I guess. I don't know. I've never watched it, but <laughs> you know, you, you might find like compassion and forgiveness, but the fact that it's in this real life and amongst the way people really talk, I found really beautiful actually, and real and transgressive. And even in, in the, the church episode, you know, with the funeral, there was like such beautiful, ministry happening um quite apart from the clergy person the entire time yeah like the fact that the uh the one guy wore shoes for the first time you know (laughs) as this like act of love you know and the fact that the women were laughing their asses off about uh about rebecca sleeping with sam and like raucous joyful steal the communion wine laughing how dare that happen in a church? Are you kidding? Do you know how much healing is happening in their neurochemistry when they're doing mm-hmm. that? That is like, that's a healing, mm-hmm. you know? And so there were then people standing up and singing with her when she was broken down. And it could have been that moment of embarrassment. And it wasn't. I mean, just so much beauty. Why can't the church understand like any of that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did it affect you, you know, going back to our conversation with about Nate when he ultimately rips the believe sign? It was, um, you know, there is so much horrible behavior that I am not excusing and I'm not I'm not diminishing the harm of it. I'm saying nobody's doing well right now. Mm. Nobody's doing well. I'm not doing well. I do these fucking podcasts that make it makes it seem like I am. I'm not doing well. I'm barely functional. So nobody's doing well. And not everyone has ways of metabolizing that, of like having support in their lives. And like Nate, Nate's not doing well. It comes from a place of pain. You know, when people when people gang up on folks online and are really like abusive to them, that performative cruelty. That is never really demonstrated by people who are doing well and who really have a sort of somewhat easy, lovely, happy, pain-free existence. So we're all trying to figure out what do we do with our pain? And my buddy Richard Rohr says, look, you you can tell a lot about somebody by what they do with their pain. Mm. Do they transform it or do they just transmit it? Mm. And so uh, when I, when Nate did that, it's like, that only can come from so yeah. much pain. Well, speaking of podcasts, you have a podcast that you host called The Confessional, and you invite guests to share times when they were at their worst. And we've seen some of the Ted Lasso characters in some of those moments or, or heard about them. What has been the reaction from folks who listen to The Confessional that you've, that's gotten back to you? It's been overwhelmingly positive, I would say. I mean, it, it was my antidote to cancel culture, to say, um, because my my deepest commitment is always going to be to grace and forgiveness. It has to be. I just don't see the redemption in my deepest commitment being to outrage. Yeah. Know? So um, to say it, and, and the reason I talk so much about mercy and compassion and forgiveness is not because I'm an expert, it's because I'm an asshole. It's because I'm in desperate need of these things. That's why. And so to say, hey, I really want to invite people in to tell me what's the worst thing you've ever done? Like what, 
tell me a story about when you were at your worst, when you did something that was really hurtful to yourself and other people. And if you do that, I will exchange it for a blessing. I will ask compassionate, curious questions. I will not stand in judgment of you. I'll try to get, you know, get down to some bigger truth. I'll let your story breathe. First of Mm -hmm. all, it's not tell me the worst thing you've done in 160 characters and let me judge who you are as a person, Mm. to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) It's letting the story breathe. It's showing some interest, like asking questions. When a man tells me about a time when he was overly aggressive with a woman and he never wanted to be that way. And I ask him, in all fairness, did you ever in your life see a man model different kind of behavior towards a woman right and for him to be like no i'm like okay it doesn't excuse it it doesn't mean it wasn't harmful but let's have a little fucking compassion for ourselves with when we're at our worst you know and then um and then i listened to it six or seven times that conversation the recording of it and then i write them a blessing i try to take the best part of Christian teaching and thought and practice and just offer it to anybody for whom it might be useful. My friend Curlin is an Episcopal priest in Portland, and she describes it as sneaking into the cathedral and looking around for the most beautiful, like valuable shit, and then hauling it into the front yard and slapping a free sign on it. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. So you've been um, now recognized by your denomination as a, a public theologian. Like that is a shift in, um, I guess, just what the practice of your ministry looks like. And you've started, created an online community that you've named The Corners. And no better time to do that in the last couple of years when we're trying to figure out, like, how can we have spiritual connection with each other when it's not always safe to do so physically? Um, what have you learned in the process of that community growing? And what are some of the tenets behind that space and the content that you have there? Yeah, so um, I wanted to, well, first of all, part of it had to do with the fact that, like, if Beyonce has taught us anything, <laughs> it's to own the means of our creative production. And so it, it was a way of saying, um, you know, Okay, I've made Random House millions of dollars. I think I might just step back and and be the be the person who profits mm-hmm. off of my work instead of it the profit from my work primarily being yeah. big corporations. And so part of it was that, um, and then part of it was uh, I wanted to have a space where grace is kind of at the center and where um, conversations can be openly had and engaged with around issues of confession and forgiveness and the things we're struggling with now. And the interesting thing is when the, I started it a couple months before the pandemic started. And then when the, in March, 2020, one morning on Sunday, I woke up and wrote prayers and published them. And then I just kept doing that every week for a year, I'd write Sunday prayers and people would just be like, but they were honest prayers, you know, they were very deeply honest about what it felt like to be going through this. And, and people were very grateful. They'd be like, I don't know how you crawl into my head every week and say what's going on in there, but you do. And so it's kind of all I have to offer is I don't mind just saying honestly, what, how I experience life, you know, and hope it's, it's useful to other people. Do you find that the online format allows people to be more honest than an in-person format? Like, is that part of what's going on there? Or is it simply now you're, you're speaking the language of the people in kind of that virtual space? Well, there's a particular type of like anonymity allows a particular type of vulnerability, but it also um, allows a tip, a particular type of horrible behavior. Yeah. I mean, there, there are things that people have said about me consistently online. I know, I know that if they were in the same room with me, I know they wouldn't do it. You know, I just, I know they wouldn't. You know who talked to me about that was Monica Lewinsky. I, I said, how do people treat you in person? And she goes, honest to God, three or four times in my entire life has somebody been shitty to me in person. Wow. But every day of my life, since I was 21, people have been shitty to me online. 
So it, you know, it gives with one hand and it takes mm-hmm. with the other. So maybe people might be more apt to be a little more vulnerable, but they're also more apt to be horrible with no consequence. Yeah. I mean, the ways in which our brains are biohacked right now for profit is really deeply disturbing to me. Yeah. There is a dopamine hit every single time you get likes and comments. I'm addicted to it. I'm addicted to it. Everybody's addicted Mm -hmm. to it. And so um, what happens is they've done all these studies that say, if you, if you put out tweets or Facebook things that have more inflammatory extreme language, you get a much higher percentage of engagement. You get, you get a lot more people going, yes, thank you. This, you know, if you're, if you have it dialed up a bit and then you get this dopamine hit from it and maybe that might not be the best part of you speaking, (laughs) right? It's probably not the best part of you speaking. And so maybe you're kind of acting out a little by doing that, or maybe you're expressing sort of the worst part of yourself as a release. That's fine. We all do. We've, we've all done this, but now you're getting, um, now you are uh, rewarded for it. And so you get this dopamine hit. It's very addictive. So the next time you step up to the tweeting plate, you go, okay, What got me the dopamine hit last time? And how can I do a little more of that? And if you genuinely wanted to express something that was more positive, you're not going to do it. Why? Because your engagement's much Mm -hmm. lower. Yeah. Well, I think we have one more question. Uh, And to kind of bring it back to Ted Lasso, I do want to comment on that dopamine hit and the way that Twitter gives and takes away, like we see in a big way with Nate. With Nate? It's so heartbreaking. Oh, it just, it just... I felt that so deeply. There's as, a million nice things oh, and then one comment. It's not I, even that bad. <laughs> I felt that so hard. I I did not know. I would love to tell you that I have such a strong sort of healthy ego that I'm unaffected, <laughs> that I'm unaffected by people's criticisms of me. And if I told you that, I would be lying. Now, certain people I'm more affected by than others, but when my first memoir came out and I was trying to write my second one, I didn't know what Goodreads was. And I <laughs> and I was like, what is this? I keep people see people posting and I look it up and then it has like I'm like, I wonder if my book is on Goodreads. So I put it in and I scroll through <laughs> all the five star and four stars because they're idiots, right? I mean, they're probably easily pleased. These are not discerning. <laughs> these are not discerning people who give me four or five stars on my books. So scroll, scroll, scroll. I read every single one and two star review, every single one. Ugh. And then I texted my editor. I don't think I should be a writer. So I. <laughs> so when. When Nate, I get a lot of affirmation online, a lot, and such a minimal amount of criticism, really. And yet I I could tell you word for word what those criticisms were. I mean, I can't tell you word for word what the positive mm. ones were because they're just background noise to the thing that I suspect, that bad thing that I suspect might be true about myself. Shit. If people like hit on that, then I'm like, ooh, they're right, you know? As a professor, I understand that keenly when our... Um students get to write, you know, a review about us. I always make Brett, you know, open the thing first and pour, screen them. pour, pour me some wine before I can <laughs> even start reading. No, it's really hard. But and yet we have to be open to criticism, right? On some level cr- to critique, like when when the reaction is to their therefore go, Nothing anybody ever says about me that is vaguely critical has any merit whatsoever. Well, that's not always true. So to me, to have this sort of to have a healthy ego is to say, I'm going to really try in a measured way to consider is 5% of this something I should listen to and then really dismiss the other 95%. That's the healthy thing, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm. But to watch Nate do that just broke my heart because I've been there. Been, and I knew he kept doing it. He couldn't even turn around when someone was talking to him because he was so addicted to it. And I'm like, I've been there, mm-hmm. man. I said I was asking the last question and then I didn't. But to, to ask the final question, we, <laughs> and as we're talking about Nate and unresolved plot points, what is something that you are hoping or a relationship that you're interested in seeing a resolution to in season three? We'll go out yeah. on that. 
I do. I do want to see a redemptive arc for him. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think they can pull it off. I really do. I think they can do it. And I think the audience can go alongside. It's tricky, but they've done so many other tricky things, haven't they? Yes. I mean, they've done extremely tricky things. Just brilliant. So, yeah, that would be my greatest desire. And I'm just as angry at him as everyone else. You know, I'm furious, but I don't know. I'm a sucker for forgiveness, you know. (laughs) Forgiveness is, should be. Uh, the currency that we are operating with right now. And hopefully that's a reminder that I can take with me from this conversation. We do appreciate your generosity with your time today. Um, And, you know, at the risk of giving you that dopamine feedback loop, you have been very formative um, for us and for our faith in our lives. And so it's been uh, just amazing for us to get to talk with you. and, And thank you for sharing in this uh this communion of ted lasso with us hey friends thanks so much thank you have a great day and that is our show we hope you enjoyed our discussion with nadia boltz weber you can check out the show notes for links to her podcast her social media accounts her writings and her website as well as all the other cool stuff we mentioned in this episode We'll be back here soon with more Ted Lasso conversations, but you can keep the conversation going with us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on both is at Ted Lasso pod. This episode of Richmond Till We Die is brought to you by Jen and Kerosene Productions. It was produced by me, Christian. Me, Marissa. And me, Brett. If this conversation made you laugh, think, or cry, we ask again that you take a moment to give our show a five-star review and subscribe to our feed the best and easiest way you can show support for the pod. Okay, I'm Marissa signing off for Brett and Christian and our esteemed guest, Nadia Boltz-Weber. Thanks for listening. Until next time, cheers, y'all. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.